Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. BetOnline Sportsbook has you covered for Super Wild Card Weekend. Giants versus Vikings, Dolphins versus Bills, Justin Herbert versus Trevor Lawrence, Dak Prescott versus Tom Brady, Lamar Jackson versus Joe Burrow in an AFC North showdown. You can use our promo code Believe. 50, that's B-L-E-A-V-5-0 to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the link in the description to this episode. Bet online, where the game starts. Good afternoon or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live. On the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is a fantabulous Thursday, January 12th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening we have got a fantabulous episode coming at you today with a brand new friend of the show. His name is Lev Akabas. He does sports business and NBA data visualization stuff. He is a reporter. He is a nerd. And me and him are going to nerd out about some basketball today. I know it's the week of the wildcard playoffs, and we're going to get to that on Friday. But Lev and I need to nerd out about some NBA basketball because... Last week, we did a podcast where we were talking about Donovan Mitchell and Luka Doncic and Giannis Antetokounmpo and uh, efficiency ratings and all of the crazy stat lines that have come out this year in the NBA. And uh, Worldwide Wob on Twitter, if you follow Worldwide Wob, uh, he's got like a million followers. He's like the best basketball person you will find on the internet right now. Worldwide Wob put out a question that said, would love to open up gulp discourse as to why the NBA is seeing these insane sat lines seemingly every night now. Pace has remained stagnant. Free throw attempts are up a bit, but relatively stable. Offensive rating efficiency is up full three points since 2020. What's your hypothesis? And as I was scrolling through this, because again, we had just done the podcast that day about Luca. Donovan Mitchell, the crazy stat lines, the fact that top six players in efficiency rating this year in the NBA have a higher efficiency rating than the MVP of 2019, which again was not that long ago. 2019 was Giannis, and Giannis is still in his prime. He's putting up the same efficiency rating this year as he did in his 2019 MVP season, and Giannis is currently fifth in the, the player efficiency rating metrics in the NBA. So I start reading through this thread and I find Lev's comments, or really his three-part hypothesis, as he calls it, 
about what these uh, insane stat lines look like. And if you look in the description to this episode, there are links to the thread so that you can read through it like a PowerPoint. But this was exactly the person I wanted to talk to about this because I wanted to do nerdy basketball analysis. I wanted to talk in depth about defensive guards and why they'll increase their value at the trade deadline. This is the type of basketball conversation I find interesting at this stage of the season. When I say like, we don't usually do basketball analysis here until like actual wins, losses, X's and O's basketball analysis until after the Super Bowl in mid-February. So for the time being, what's interesting before that point is trade deadline stuff and broader trends across the league and nerdy basketball stuff about the play itself, because these games don't actually matter for determining the champion and determining the playoffs, especially this year, where if you just get into the playoffs, you're going to have a chance of making it to the second round because all of these matchups are going to be really, really close to each other. So since there's no stakes on these games and most of it is for seeding positioning that won't matter at the end of the day, you know, NBA regular season games are pretty irrelevant. Broader trends across the NBA are interesting to talk about at this time because by the time we get to the playoffs, it's going to be all about Memphis versus Golden State and legacy of the Dallas Mavericks and legacy of Giannis versus Boston and all that stuff that we talk about every year when the playoffs are all around. So Lev was exactly the person I wanted to talk to about this. We got together for a podcast this week and it actually turned into a really really interesting conversation that, I mean, we touched on like 15 or 16 of the teams in the NBA at some point through a winding conversation about uh, defensive guards and their trade values, uh, scoring wings, and all sorts of broader trends across the NBA. So nerdy basketball talk with Lev Akavis is where we're going with today's show. Uh, Again, if you want to see the the chart, there's a link in the description to this episode, and his Instagram has all sorts of content as well, uh, including one that was talking about how the Broncos and Rams... Christmas Day game that I said in our Take It Easy podcast Christmas special that if you watch that game, you are a deep, deep sicko, especially at the same time as Bucks and Celtics. Apparently, America's got a lot of deep, deep sickos because that Broncos Rams game that was 51 to 14 and got Nathaniel Hackett fired, that Broncos Rams game registered the highest rated broadcast of any non NFL program on cable television this year no scripted television show no awards show nothing did better ratings than broncos rams deep sicko shit on christmas day nothing did better numbers than that a lot of deep sickos in america but that's one of the fun graphs that you can find on lev's instagram account which is also linked in the description to this episode So I have talked long enough. I've done nerdy basketball talk a little bit here. We're going to get deep into the weeds on the numbers and the trends and Kelly Oubre today with Lev Akabas. Welcome, 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 everybody. We have Lev Akabas joining us here on the show today. Uh, I hope I got his last name right because uh, I've been messing it up a couple times here. But uh, welcome into the show. Uh, He does... Uh, data visualization and data reporting for Sportico. His Instagram links in the description of this episode if you guys want to follow him because he does all kinds of great stuff. Uh, he he put out some football data and uh, and TV viewership numbers, but 
the thing that I'm interested in talking to him today about is basketball. So, uh, Lev, thanks for stopping into the show for the first time. Uh, a new friend of the show is always exciting. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, the the thread that you put out it was uh, in response to uh, a, a tweet that was put out by uh, Rob Perez, aka Worldwide Wob, on the internet, and um, it was really interesting to me because I. I wanted data that kind of put out why we're seeing all these crazy stat lines in the NBA. And you kind of hit the points real quick that, that were great. So uh, do you just want to kind of explain to people who don't know about the tweet? And if people want to visualize it, there's a link to it in the description of this episode. Yeah, sure. I can just kind of summarize it. So the original question that Rob posed was just, why are we seeing so many of these crazy individual stat lines? Uh, like Donovan Mitchell's 71 point game, um, almost a triple double in that game. Luca had the 60 point triple double. Um, and so I sort of gave just three quick reasons. Uh, the first one is that teams are sort of centralizing their offense more around their stars than ever before. And the data point I had for that was that if you look at the average usage rate, which sort of is an indicator of the percentage of possessions that are used by a certain player by, from a team, if you look at the average highest usage rate of each team, that number is, has gone steadily up over the past 10 or so years and has reached an all-time high in this season. So that was the first point is that stars are sort of just being used more by their teams. Teams are putting more offense through their stars. Um, the second point was that, um, and this was a little bit of conjecture, but rim finishing um, as a data point is, is up percentage-wise this season. Um, and I think that's just because more small ball lineups, fewer shot blockers are being played. It's just easier for players to get to the rim. Um, and then the last point was sort of another somewhat qualitative point, but backed by the fact that the, the worst offenses in the NBA are so much better than they were five years ago from a points for possession standpoint. And that's really just like all a lot of teams are trying. There's a lot less tanking. The talent pool is really deep. Uh, there's just so many good players and so many good teams that there's just so many more of these guys who could go off on any given night. So those are sort of the three main points that we can hit. We can go into each of them individually or talk about other reasons. There are many other reasons. Well, these data points are super helpful. And like you said, they're that one's kind of more qualitative when you have the the fun uh, offensive rating uh, chart where you put all the teams in every season over the past few years, which is great. Um, the first one that I thought was interesting was uh, I just love this so much that you called it heliocentricism, which is great because it's more centered around the star players. And as a nerd, I read that. I was like, my nerd brain was like, oh, that's so cool that he decided to be like, yeah, the offenses are more centered around stars. Do you, do you think that's kind of a, because it's everyone across the league. Do you think that's like a byproduct of everyone having uh, a 25 point a game score on their team, apart from maybe like five teams in the sport at this point? Is it kind of like that the talent is more deep or the talent is more dispersed? Why do you think that that's the case? That's a good question. First, first of all, I didn't come up with the heliocentrism term. I wish I did because it's so perfect. And <laughs> it's, it's, just, great. it's just a really fun term to say, but I, I've seen a lot of other data analysts using it. So I can't take credit for it, but it's still um, clever. It's still clever. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. In terms of the talent being more dispersed, that actually is an interesting point because there were a lot of super teams, so to speak, over the past like decade or so that were kind of probably eating into each other's usage rates and eating into the like when Curry and Durant are on the same team, it's much less likely that one of them's going to have a crazy stat line than if they're on separate teams. Same with like LeBron and Wade. Um, so I think mm -hmm. you've seen a lot of those super teams break up a little bit and stars have their own teams more, which which I think is a really good point. Um, talent pool is definitely deeper. Uh, no, just no question if you look at 
sort of the fringe all-stars now versus 10 years ago. That's the scoring ability of them is, is just through the roof. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think just sort of from a schematic point of view, um, you watch a lot of old games. There's just random players getting post up or ISO opportunities who just aren't that good at it. And I think that's something the teams have cut out. They're not just sort of like throwing the ball in the post to players who are not that good down there. Um, and like in an early 2000 NBA game, it's sort of like everyone gets a chance at the post and you get a chance to post up and you get a chance to post up. And, that, and now it's like teams have realized that that's inefficient offense. Yeah. And I think everyone, I mean, the data has been out there for years now. Like the Warriors were taking advantage of it like 10 years ago now. Like the data has been out there. I think it's just everyone's recognizing that the the rules and the dimensions haven't changed significant enough to make it so that three pointers and layups are the things that you strive for. And if you shoot those consistently enough, then over a sample size of three seasons, you will see your offensive um, rating go up, which is the last data point that you brought up is like everyone's using that data. So everyone's offensive rating is going up. And we have, I guess now like seven years removed from the first warriors championship. We have enough data to recognize that everyone everyone's offensive rating is going up because everyone's adapting the way they play offenses combined with the fact that everyone has a really good player on their team. Like there's again, the talent pool is just deeper than ever before. Yeah. Yeah. Offense is just way better. But I think that there was a separate question of with offense getting better, why this season have there been so many of these crazy individual performances because offense has gone up a little bit. I mean, obviously it's significant in the scale of the NBA, but like we're talking about a point or two per game, basically each season why this season or now there's like twice as many 50 point explosions as there were last year. And some of it could be random, but I think there is a little bit more emphasis on the stars that in addition to overall offense going up, that's driving it. Yeah. I think all of those crazy stat lines happening within like six days of each other is a little bit random. Like, I don't know if you're a, a baseball guy at all, but whenever people are like, Oh my God, there's been two no hitters in the same week. I'm like, well, cause you know, you're no more likely to have a no hitter one day than the next day. Like it's just random chance that sometimes they're yeah. going to be back to back like that. And I think the the Luca Donovan Mitchell Giannis games being like th like within the span of six days, I think that that's just happenstance. But it's not like Clay wasn't also dropping 54 that week. Like it is a yeah. byproduct of the data you brought up. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's probably a combination of both trends and random. It, and I like that you brought up the baseball point because it reminds me of that. There was that stretch where there were like three perfect games in a few months around mm -hmm. 2010. And one of them was by this guy, Dallas Braden, who was like a losing pitcher over the course of his career. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't think that was an indicator of any wider like trend. There's been maybe one perfect game since then. It wasn't like now we're getting perfect games all the time. It just was this crazy two month period and data is just random like that. And sometimes you know, it's fun to look into trends, but sometimes it's just randomness. Yeah, because you're no more likely like the odds of having a perfect game or the odds of having a 60 point game are no more likely to happen on December 23rd than they are to happen on January 4th. Like it's all mm -hmm. just chance in terms of when it's going to happen, which, again, is probably what brought the conversation to it in the first place, because all of these crazy stat lines were happening back to back. But I mean. Devin Booker's only played like two months this year and he has four 45 point games this year. Like that's more a byproduct of the offense than it is like larger trends across the league. Yeah. This is a little tangent. I saw an interesting, someone put together like the standard deviations of, of the top 25 scorers and Devin Booker had the biggest deviation in terms of like being the least consistent scorer. Um, mm -hmm. So like the, the, the most variance in terms of sometimes he has bad games, sometimes he has good games. So that's interesting. You brought him up. Yeah, I know Devin Booker's super interesting because 
the thing that kind of brought that to focus for everyone was the NBA finals in 2021 when we were all watching the Phoenix Suns for like a month straight was like Devin Booker was putting up 28, 30 points. And then I think it was game three of that series when they were up 2-0, he went like one for eight from the field and had like eight points and the Bucks beat him up and then they ended up losing the series and it wasn't all Devin Booker's fault, but like it was kind of that idea of like, he goes from scoring 30 to scoring eight because his, uh, his data points are so random. It's interesting that that's never changed, but I, yeah, like you said, he's, he's put up, he's put up probably the largest standard deviation in the sport. Cause I can't think of like even Donovan Mitchell's raised his floor this year. Cause those two were super comparable the last few years. And I think Donovan Mitchell's floor has gone up now that he's playing in a different offense in Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is necessarily about Booker's game that makes, makes it his scoring so high variance. I mean, I guess there's, there is a real, like a pretty big reliance on, on the outside shot. So that could be one thing, but, but the, on the same list, Jalen Brown was someone who was the least, had the least variance and which kind of checks out. Like, I feel like anytime I look at the Celtics box score, he's got 20 to 30. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and he also just takes a lot of outside shots. So I, that those were kind of hard to, to square for me. Yeah. You reminded me of the joke I made the finals last year, which was, uh, if you need 30 from Jalen Brown, he'll give you 21. But if you need 14, he'll give you 21. That's what Jalen Brown's good <laughs> for. He will get, he will get you 21 points, regardless yeah. of what you need. He's giving you 21 points. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's true. It's backed up by the data, apparently. Yeah. I, it's funny that you brought that up because that's just something that I'd like kind of picked up like watching Celtics. I'd never looked deeply into the data points, but I, I would guess like Booker makes more sense because I feel like, one of the Daryl Morey calls it super skilled fives. So like Giannis, Jokic, Embiid. Um, I guess you could even put like you could even kind of put Tatum in that camp. I know he's kind of a four, but like I, I feel like those players who get more points closer to the rim than with three pointers are probably less likely to have variance in their skills. So I, I mean, I don't know what the point may be, but even so, those guys, I mean, this is the second point that you brought up of being able to get to the rim more like those players are also putting up gigantic stat lines. It's not just like Luca hitting 10 threes in a game or Donovan Mitchell putting up 71 with 20 whatever free throws like it's it's actually kind of the big guys are also putting up ridiculous stat lines. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. When, and when you mentioned Giannis, that made me think of a point that I don't think we can gloss over here with the rim percentages going up is that. Like, it's just sort of the refs are a lot more lenient on drives in terms of the contact players can initiate and also, like, number of steps they can take. I feel like at least once a game you see a player drive and take a certain number of steps, you're like, that would never fly in a pickup game anywhere. But for some reason, like, they'll do it in the NBA and not a single fan or player on the opposing team will even, like, signal for a travel or question it. Um, So I feel like there's this sort of standard of officiating with travels and the gather step that is just at sort of a different point in the NBA that it is at all other levels of basketball. And I could see that being a, at least part of the increase. And in, it's about three percentage points, I think, over the past couple of seasons. Went mm-hmm. from rim finishing being about 62%, and now it's 65 or 66%. I could see a lot of that being because of refing tendencies. Yeah, it looks like about the data you put out says like 3.8% increases yeah. in at-the-rim shooting percentage. Um, is are there any other reasons you could think of for why that might be going up? Yeah, so the, the reason that I put in the Twitter thread was more small ball lineups, which that's something I haven't really run the numbers on, um, but but seems to be um, mm-hmm. true if you just sort of like think about the lineups teams are playing and you see a lot more teams playing stretch bigs 
um, who are who are more focused on their offensive skill sets and not so much on their ability to protect the rim on defense. You see a lot fewer Roy Hibberts, Timofey Mozgovs, um, those types of players who were played a lot in the mid 2010s and really don't have a place in the NBA anymore. Um, and I was I was actually sort of talking about this with with someone who didn't know a lot of basketball recently when I was telling them about this thread, and they were saying, "Well, why?" Why don't teams just go the other way and play more shot blockers if if that's a more effective way to have a better defense? And I think what happened is that the Warriors put, went small with their sort of quote-unquote death lineup um, in the mid-2010s. And so it became this sort of game theory thing where every team wanted to copy them so they weren't left behind. And then everyone kind of adjusted their strategy at the same time. And now no one's playing shot blocking bigs a lot anymore. Um, whereas like it's not necessarily one of strategy is so much more effective necessarily i'm sure you could still win with the shot blocking big but because the warriors sort of did it first and had so much success with it um teams are just valuing offense more than defense um whereas where whereas there's still effective ways to win by focusing on defense and playing bigger guys uh the Cavs have sort of done that last year uh they have a very good offense this year but but last year they definitely um you know with mobley and allen were putting an emphasis on shot blocking and defense so that that is a viable path to winning but i think because of the success of the warriors and to a lesser extent hardens rockets that's sort of just become the meta um, in the NBA, so to speak. Yeah, everyone's adjusting their personnel because, you know, the data points to that's what was successful. Is there a team that you feel like could like pivot in the other direction? Because when you said that, my mind immediately went to the Pelicans who Hmm. generate a lot of their offense from inside either the paint or inside 10 feet, like free throws and layups and dunks are a big part of their offense more than three-point shooting. So I feel like if they were to pivot, I feel like that would be a team that, if they adjusted personnel would be really interesting to, to kind of like flip the script on the NBA. Yeah, that, that would be interesting. I think, I mean, Valanciunas is not your typical sort of old school shot blocking. Yeah. I I, I kind of felt like they would like pivot from Valanciunas to some, mm. someone like Steven Adams who they used to have. Interesting. But... <laughs> yeah. They did have Adams and it seems like Valanciunas is a better fit with Zion offensively. Um, and just because Zion needs the space and if, if, I, I would worry if they had more of a traditional center that that teams would be able to load up on Zion when the Pelicans yeah. are on offense. But but it, it's all of this is just sort of like an interesting trade off from offense and defense. Yeah, because I, I was thinking of the Bucks in a similar context where it's like they've moved Brooke Lopez out of being the what we used to think of Brooke Lopez as to now he is kind of like a stretch four and Giannis is is kind of their small ball center at a lot of times, which I, I think is the right strategy for what they're doing. It's just interesting to see the evolution of the Bucks from where they were in 2019, which is where a lot of your data like starts out in looking at the last four years, mm-hmm. seeing how they played in 2019 when it was... Lopez and Brogdon and Eric Bledsoe and um and Middleton to seeing how they play now it's been interesting to watch that evolution because it's still you know based around Giannis his usage his usage rate is way up this year because Middleton's out but like mm-hmm. the Bucks are a specific example that I think is interesting that articulates the point that you're talking about yeah and they've they've turned Lopez into like quite a rim protector uh, for someone who was never really considered um, to have that as a strong suit earlier in his career. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they've ended up now with, I think they have the best defense in the NBA, but only like the 25th best offense. Um, so they're, they are sort of an interesting example of a team that has prioritized defense and length. Um, and, and I think that's mostly just because the personnel in Middleton's been out. I don't know if that's like a, what's a conscious choice before the season, but 
but yeah, I think that goes to show that like there is there is still a viable path to success from having you know multiple big guys on the court who could protect the rim and having that be like a core part of your team's identity. The the last uh, the third part, which was more parity across the league and and seeing like the floor on offenses go up from. Uh, I think it was like eight years ago, the the floor was about 100. And to see it now, the floor with the the Charlotte Hornets and the Clippers and Rockets is about 108, 109, which I think is interesting because it makes sense. Like, I, I, you know, everyone either bemoans or enjoys the fact that, it, that everyone's shooting more three pointers. Everyone's getting the ball to the rim more. Everyone's trying to shoot more free throws and stuff. But I, I was interested to actually put data to that point to be like, yeah, the, the floor on offense is going up even for the teams that we know have no chance of making the playoffs. Like I would argue in 2016, just having Bradley Beal on your team is good enough to get you the seven or eight seed. And now that's obviously not the case, regardless of Bradley Beal being older, like a player of Bradley Beal's caliber, who's like a perennial all-star scoring at the level he does, but the Wizards can't even sniff the playoffs. Yeah, so that that's that's going to the point of just like the talent pool being deeper. Which I think if you look at like some of the players who are going to be left out of the All Star game this year, it's it's pretty insane. Um, <laughs> where you, I, I've seen a couple of people on Twitter being like, "Oh, Aaron Gordon, like look at his numbers. He plays so well with Jokic, versatile defender. He should be an All Star." And you just start to like list the names. You're like, "Are you taking off Devin Booker? Are you taking off like <laughs> like SGA? Like I'm, who are you uh, taking off to I, let I'm... Aaron Gordon in?" I'm up here in Sacramento and uh, yeah. Domas is going to probably make the all-star team just by like yeah. sheerly like forcing his way into the lineup. But like De'Aaron Fox has like 24 points a game this year and he's gotten basically no chance of making the all-star team. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is this is a total side point, but I, I am like very, I'm a very strong believer that the NBA should have 15 man all-star rosters. Um, it, it's always been 12 since when there were like eight teams in the league and it's still 12 and there are 30 teams in the league and, you know, more international players, like, you know, players are playing much longer. So for so many reasons, the talent pool is deeper. There are literally like three times as many teams in the league. It doesn't make sense to me that there's still the same number of all-stars as there were in the 50s. Well, yeah, but the all-star, if we're going to make all-star something that actually matters, like we're going to judge at the end of your career how many all-stars you made, or we're going to say like... uh I don't know, like Brandon Ingram has made an all-star team, but like Mike Conley never made an all-star team. Like if we're actually going to care about it and use it as an evaluation point, then yeah, we got to just give more people all-star nods and make it. I mean, even if you want to do like two or three man rosters deeper, I mean, think about all the players who you could add to this year's team. I mean, Aaron Gordon could make the all-star team. De'Aaron Fox could make the all-star team. Uh, Trey Young might get <laughs> booted in the Eastern Conference this year, which is kind of wild to think about. Uh, you know, Darius Garland might make the All Star team if you do that. So, like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that point. But I think that's the point about. I, it seems like the thing that we keep coming back to is just the deeper talent pool across the league. Yeah, and it's de- it's sort of deep in all areas. I think, like, if you look at the the top top, how many MVP candidates are there? That seems like it's sort of <laughs> at a peak. Like, there's this there's, year. There's, I mean. Seven guys who can win the MVP. And then you're looking at sort of like the next level, like how many all-stars are there? There's like 50 guys who can make the all-star team. And then you look at some of these teams at the, at the end of their benches, like the Knicks can't find minutes for Fournier, Reddish, or Rose. Um, and they're, they're they're a middle-of-the-pack team, and they can't find minutes for three guys who like probably should be in NBA rotations who you think would be in NBA rotations. 100%. 100%. Um, so I think if you just go to like every level of like top, sort of fringe all-star, bottom, it's just it's just like crazy, the, the level that it's at. 
and to see data points that show how the league is changing you know, like you said, on all facets is interesting because I was looking up point per game numbers for a show that I was doing. And basically every team in the NBA has two 20 point a game scorers at this point. Uh, and wow. case in case in point, the Spurs have two 20 point a game scorers at this point, which means like 20 points a game seven years ago meant you were like at least in the conversation for all star. And now uh, there's legitimately 80 players in the in the league who, if you give them enough minutes and enough shots, will get to 20 points a game because of, um, you know, types of shots that are being taken and just the pace with which teams are playing offense. I mean, <laughs> like I said, Keldon Johnson and Devin Vassell are both 20 point a game scorers this year. So I yeah. think everyone, if they're putting it up, everyone's got two 20 a game scorers. Yeah, that's really that's something I haven't thought about. I think the Miami almost has three with Butler, Bam, and Hero. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they're. There may be a few other teams that also almost have three. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder, you make an interesting point about sort of like the number of guys who could pot- potentially score 20 on decent efficiency in any given game. I wonder if sort of that ability is going to start being slightly less valuable because so many people can do it. And maybe there's sort of more demand for role players like uh, Mikel Bridges, Alex Caruso, like it's po- maybe it's possible those guys are sort of harder to find right now than than someone who can just go out and get you 20 because it seems like every team has found two of those guys but there's still a lot of teams that are missing the Mikel Bridges role player type of player I feel like that it's not necessarily a new trend because like every year people want to get PJ Tucker on their team so it's not like it's a new trend yeah. of like wanting the three and True. D guys um, it's just interesting to see the demand change because like even the bad teams have players who can get buckets. And so I think it's interesting to see where the pivot comes from there. Cause like coming up at the deadline this year, like Kelly Oubre is almost a 20, a game scorer this year, and he's the third leading scorer on the Hornets. So, I mean, someone's going to want Kelly Oubre. It's just going to be interested to see how that how that team ends up mixing him into their lineup. Because if you just get Kelly Oubre to be, uh, I mean, insert, who am I thinking? Like if you get him to kind of put up Tyrese Maxey numbers on your team, like, I don't know if that's worth the player and a first round pick. You're going to have to give up to get Kelly Oubre in the first place. So like, it'll be interesting to see who makes trades and for what reasons. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And and Oubre is a good example. The example that I would think of maybe sh- like, sort of shows this even more would be Bogdanovich on the Pistons mm-hmm. where it, I'm hearing that there's a lot of demand for him and and I keep seeing him in trade rumors people posting like fake trades on on Twitter and I think he's a he's a nice player he's obviously works off ball so he would work well on a really good team but to me there's a lot of guys who do that and there are a lot fewer guys who do what Alex Crusoe does um so if we're talking about sort of like who to target um it's it seems like in my opinion there should be more demand for the alex caruso type of player um and, yeah. and i think like a bogdanovich type player just to, to me like some of the trades i see him going for are, like i think he's he would be overvalued because i just think there's so many guys who can fill that role around the nba right now there's literally been four of them that have been traded in the last since the off season i don't know how many months that is like eight months basically because you had kevin herter go to sacramento you had royce o'neill go to brooklyn and you had bogdanovich get traded to the pistons like you can you can find those players pretty much everywhere they're they're on every nba roster i guess the argument is you can never have too many of them but then the flip side is there's not enough touches to go around to actually elevate 
elevate the team from being in that middle of the pack. Like even if your offensive rating is up, I mean, I, I'm going to guess the Pistons are probably still in the twenties in offensive rating this year. Just yeah. off the top of my head, I can look it up, but like, I guess the argument is you can never have too many of those guys, but I'm with you. I think that if they change the value on that, yeah, they're 24th in, um, they're 24th in offensive rating this year. So, I mean, does you can have those players and you can trade for those players, but ultimately it doesn't elevate the the ceiling of what the offense or what the the team is going to look like. Yeah, I, th- I think another point which is kind of related is that there's specifically talking about Caruso. Um, and I think someone else who fits this really well is Melton on the Sixers, who's having who they got for pretty cheap and is having an amazing impact on them. Mm-hmm. I think that now that because all there's all these offensive players who can score very easily from the perimeter. Um, and because every team has like two of these guys, as we were saying, and these individual performances are happening so often, I think having a guard who can defend like Caruso, Melton, Derek White, that seems to me to be a very valuable skill right now in the NBA because there's so many of these guys who can just sort of start going on scoring explosions and to have someone you can throw at them. And ironically, the Mitchell game was actually against the Bulls where Caruso <laughs> was involved. So maybe not the best example, but um I don't know if anyone was stopping Mitchell on that day, but, but yeah, the, the general point is that, and is just that I think guard defense should be in very high demand right now. And if you look at like sort of plus minus numbers, a lot of those guys, the three that I just mentioned, a few others I can't think of have really, really good advanced metrics right now. And I think that that's because there's so many guys who can go off from the perimeter from a scoring perspective and a lot fewer who can actually defend the perimeter. So I mean, you're saying it's kind of hard to think of, but like Caruso is obviously on a not great team. And I'm sure if someone paid a hefty price, they could get Caruso. Are there any ones who, you know, a team like, uh, I mean, Memphis who had Milton and, and traded him? Are there are there any like guys who you think teams like Memphis, Milwaukee should be valuing? Because you mentioned Derek White, like Boston kind of recently traded for him and it's been a super helpful addition even if his three-point shooting is sporadic it doesn't matter because he's still impacting them on the defensive end of the floor in a way that actually like changes the dynamic of what boston is doing when marcus smart isn't on the floor so i mean can you think of any guys who like are on bad teams who might be available for someone or is this just a case of there's maybe a demand but not enough players yeah i think it might be the second one i'm I'm trying to think i'm looking I, I just pulled up like a, a list of guards in the nba right now i'm just trying to like <laughs> go through it but i mean one i think is that i um i i think the knicks should you know quickly has been in a lot of trade rumors but i think quickly is someone who maybe is not the best one-on-one defender but really understands defensive schemes really well and and is a good team defender very active communicative i think that's someone who I would be holding on to if I was an NBA franchise. I think that's because as I was just talking about the value of guard defense, um, um, I'm trying to find another name, someone who might be available. Caruso is like the obvious choice. I mean, there's Alvarado on the Pelicans, but I don't think they're getting rid of him. Um, yeah, no, probably not. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't realize I just looked up guy. the defensive ratings. I didn't realize Milwaukee does kind of have one of those guys. Javon Carter has been awesome defensively this year. I didn't realize. Yeah, that. I don't know. If, I don't know if they're getting rid of, him either but well i um, just i i think that's more of like maybe they don't need to give up a premium pick for caruso if they i mean they don't have premium picks anymore but like maybe a team like them is fine with just rolling out with javon carter being there yeah uh, their defensive wing i think they're fine defensively i think memphis is pretty fine defensively um i think in terms of the teams that can need a defensive boost like the warriors actually surprisingly have a have a pretty poor defense this season um 
And then there's sort of some teams on the sort of on the fringe, like are they gonna go to contend? Are they not? Um I mean if Denver can get Caruso. Um, I, they're, they're really struggling on defense, even though they have among the best offenses in the league. If they can get Caruso, that would be huge for their second That'd unit. Be so good. That would be uh, so, so, so good, think, man. Because yeah, I think Denver's the best team in the West, so that would be just perfect if you add Caruso to that lineup. Yeah. Do I mean? Where, where do you do you, you want to sort of talk about more of these like contenders, team players to target, or should, should we sort of circle back to the uh, the original point about about the individual performances? Uh. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add about the defensive players on that side? Because we did kind of fall down the tangent there. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, I, I think that was sort of what I wanted to say about the sort of like combating the these perimeter individual performances with with perimeter defense. That I mean, it's interesting to think about because I mean, if every if the flo- like the the third bring it back to the data you had like if the third point about more parity along offensive rating is going up than having a defensive guard like that or having a defensive wing uh even if it's more the classic pj tucker mold of like that's what you're everyone's trying to trade for pj tucker even if it's something like that like if the floor is rising that means those players are even more valuable because you can defend against every team in the sport and they don't become liabilities on offense when you're playing a team that has say i mean it's regular season games. So like you're going to play the teams with low offensive ratings. Like I saw those tanking Sixers teams were like way down on that yeah. data point that you had, which is like, Jesus Christ, what were they doing yeah, so <laughs> to really, be so low on those lists? Yeah, really. I, I, I think one you hit on that point was really good was that there's, there's some teams that are kind of actively tanking right now. I would say this, the closest are like the Pistons, the Hornets and the Spurs, but mm-hmm. I don't think you're getting the all-out tanks like the process Sixers, and and there's definitely fewer teams tanking than there were five years ago. So that's that's one thing I was trying to highlight with that chart. That the Sixers specifically is really funny. I think when their offensive rating was below a hundred in one of those seasons, and I had set when my first draft of the chart, I had set the like the bottom of the y-axis to a hundred, and I just completely cut them out of the chart. And they were so far below everyone else that I didn't even realize I cut them out of the chart until I was like doing a double check of all the data. And I was like, oh, they're at like 97. Wow. And then I had to expand the <laughs> y-axis and they were so far below everyone else. Um, so yeah, the process sixers were really, were really something. That was, I mean, it was an experiment for sure because it, it's what I'm looking at it now, three years in a row. And you see them slowly creeping back up, but like it's three years in a row that they are the like absolute worst offensive rating in the entire league. And it's two of them. It's not even close. One of them, they almost get caught by the, uh, the, the Brooklyn Nets team. That was the worst team in the league that allowed the Celtics to draft Jason Tatum. <laughs> they get caught by that team, mm. but I mean, other than that, they are like the worst on all of those graphics. But yeah, I mean, if the if the floor is rising on offensive ratings, then it makes those players more valuable because even against the the tanking teams, which I guess you could throw Houston in the mix there, but Houston's been tanking true, for true. years now. Yeah, I but, forgot about I forgot about Houston. They're definitely they're definitely a tanker. But like they've had two like lottery picks the last few, and I guess like the Lakers when they got Russell Ingram and uh Lonzo back to back we're doing the same thing but like I feel like having Jalen Green and Jabari Smith and Kevin Porter should make them like better than the Magic but they're mm-hmm. not for some reason or better than the Spurs maybe they will be at the end of the season but like I feel like the Rockets are the good case of like this is how tanking can still be effective in 
an NBA where there's just such a deeper talent pool and you can try and be bad and it doesn't work because, you know, Lowry Markkinen is going to be an all-star all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the the Magic. The Magic are another one of those teams that feels like they've been tanking forever. Um, and I mean, yes, yeah, so Houston Houston could end up in that territory if they if they don't turn it around soon. Mm-hmm. But but they should get another high pick this year. So I guess just I mean, sort of should, about right? it. develop I mean, the guys and getting the pieces to work. Yeah, I, that one just doesn't make sense to me. But I think your point is right. Like, there's not even the true tanking teams are like. Washington still has Bradley Beal and <laughs> like yeah. they're not going to make a, the playoffs. Under a really but... competitive um, uh, other East teams. Yeah, there's a couple other East teams that are like, even the Magic are like surprisingly close to the, the play-in and the play-in has, has definitely changed uh, the just sort of the incentives for teams where if you're yeah. in the 12 seed you're now close to the play-in whereas previously you'd sort of see, oh, I'm closer to the bottom than I am in the playoffs. But I just I would have thought that people like wouldn't I know I'm not saying like slip on the banana peel, but like teams wouldn't recognize that like if you're fighting for the 10 seed, you're not actually that good. Like the, the Hornets made the 10 seed the last two years and lost in the play in. But like I, I felt like teams would be smart enough to be like, oh, we can like fight for the play in instead of like, you know, being Chicago right now or Chicago. I know they're they're now in a playoff position and they're doing a little better, but like Chicago, you look up and they're like, oh, we're the 11, 12 seed and we're fighting for the play in spot. But we could also like bottom out and try and protect our draft pick that we gave to Orlando for Vucevic. I, I don't know. I would have thought teams like I understand from like a fan point getting excited about the idea of being in the play. And I'm in Sacramento right now. So God knows they're excited about a play in game. But I feel like as people running organizations, they wouldn't like slip on the banana peel and be like, we're better than we actually are because we're in the 12 seed right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like there's teams, a 12 seed can definitely delude themselves into thinking they're actually good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Just because they're close to the plan. But I also think because the NBA changed the the sort of scaling of the lottery odds a couple of years ago, the incentive just isn't really there to bottom out the way that it was before. I'm looking at the odds right now. It's like the fourth worst team has a 12.5% chance at the at the number one pick, mm-hmm. which is like reasonable. But if you can just miss the play-in game, you can still have a 3% chance. Um, so, it, you know, is that is that extra 9% chance at the number one pick? In all likelihood, you're going to end up in that 9 to 12 range of, of, of the draft anyway. Is that worth like wasting an entire season, maybe disengaging fans? Like I don't know, it's 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 tough, but but and you can in a lot of see, these cases, in a lot of these yeah, cases, it's three kind of seasons. Of, yeah, it can be multiple seasons. Um, like mm-hmm. you know, tanking is you know, uh, uh, like a, you have to be really committed to tanking. Just doing it for one season might not mm-hmm. have an impact. So I, I can see how the incentives just aren't there to to bottom out. Yeah, I get that, and ultimately that's what the NBA wanted because of those Sixers teams that are at the bottom of your graphic that. Yeah. Um, was kind of like taking this to a whole new extreme that worked out. It just uh, it worked out to get them back to like mid instead of working out to get them to yeah. the top. It's pretty shocking. The Sixers have not made the conference finals yet since. Yeah, but like that that year against the Hawks, that one was just like that. That was like a one in 700 chance that they don't make it to the conference finals because they blew a 25 point lead and a 24 point lead. <laughs> Like, true, yeah. and they they maybe could have taken advantage of that Giannis injury and and given Milwaukee a better series, but 
so yeah i mean there's so much there's so much variability but still just uh <laughs> they had butler they've had harden simmons mb just like you oh, look at the guys God. they've had it's 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 pretty amazing they haven't made the conference finals i forgot about the quadruple bounce already i mean my mind went to the hawks series first off when ben simmons was afraid to shoot because that was the one where there's like no excuse for not winning that mm-hmm. one like it, yeah they, they did cut they were like one quadruple bounce away from going to the conference finals four years ago yeah random question but going back to the individual performances do you think uh kobe's 81 it's going to get passed in the near future. Okay, it's going to it's going to have to take a perfect set of circumstances for it to happen. And that perfect set of circumstances is ball dominant guard or wing playing on a bad team that happens to have like everyone out one night and they're the similar to similar circumstances to what happened with the Mitchell game where like they're playing another bad defense middle of the road opponent he has to score a bunch of points and the game is competitive. Cause I don't think the one thing I'll say about the 81, I don't think anyone can get 81 without overtime, like within the 48 mm. minute construct. I don't think anyone can get to, yeah. to 81. So it would have to be a game that goes to overtime or double overtime or triple overtime. Like you have to, I don't think anyone will ever get Kobe's 81 in 48 minutes of basketball. I think it's going to take, an incredible think, achievement just the more you the more you think about it <laughs> yeah no it's it's absolutely ridiculous and i don't i don't think it's going to happen again without needing overtime in order to make it happen because it's just it's not possible in the in the current con- it, it's not possible for kobe to be like iso ball iso ball iso ball on every play like that just doesn't happen anymore in the sport and yeah. nor should it like they only won that game by like a handful of points i think like it was not mm-hmm. It was not an efficient strategy. It was just a perfect because I if I remember correctly, was was that 2005 or 2006 that the 81 point game happened? I think it was the the 05, 06 season. So that would have been what, like two years after Shaq left. And yeah. I'm going to guess that either Rudy Tomjanovich or Phil Jackson was coaching that team um, like it's just perfect confluence of events of league being ISO dominant the Lakers being such a poor roster, Kobe Bryant being Kobe Bryant with the the mentality of I'm going to I'm going to shoot even if it means costing the Lakers the 2004 NBA finals. I feel like yeah, yeah like just <laughs> and, all of those things had to go right for and the Raptors just not doubling him for who knows why. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I think it, uh, teams were just once someone got to 60 like teams would just throw two guys at him in a way that maybe they didn't then. Because the Mitchell thing brought up this point to me about think about the only uh, 70 point games in the history of the NBA. So you're talking about Wilt Chamberlain, which is like, you know, um, that Kobe Bryant. Then you have David Robinson fighting for the scoring title and having to score like the, the perfect confluence yeah. of like they have to get him 60 something points so he yeah. can beat Shaq for the scoring title. That happened on Twitter today. It would be ridiculous <laughs> yeah like that that circumstance and then you have devin booker in a game where they lost by 10 points he was just bombs away in garbage time and then you had donovan mitchell needing overtime and needing 13 points in overtime to get to 71 yeah so i i i don't think i don't think in regulation anyone's ever gonna get to yeah. 80 because I don't know if anyone's ever going to get to 70 in regulation yeah. again. I actually forgot Booker got to 70 because in my mind, that's just a 64 point game. Cause he had those six garbage time free throws to get to 70. So 
like in my mind, I literally forgot that was a 70 point game. So it feels like a 64. So it feels like no one has gone within 17 points of, of Kobe recently. No. Yeah. That one. I mean, you don't even have to count that one as 70 if we don't want to, because it's like, yeah, it was just, it's semantics that they got to, that he got to 70 in that game. Cause I forgot about the garbage time free throws. I just remember the bombs away. We're down by 20, but we're not going to take him out of the game. So we're yeah. just like all the Celtics backups are in and we're just going to bombs away three pointers because we're the worst team in the mm-hmm. league. Yeah. Big turnaround for the Suns <laughs> from that point. <laughs> it happened kind of fast, too. Like yeah. it was like they're terrible, terrible, terrible. Get to the bubble. All of a sudden they're eight. No. And then yeah, the number one team in the West. Yeah, absolutely. That bubble run was. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was what started it. Do you think anyone's ever going to get to 81? I don't know. I, mean, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with NBA rule changes or refing tendencies. Um, so we, we can't really predict what this is going to look like in a couple of years from now. I think barring any changes to refing tendencies and rule changes, I would see the offensive ratings continue to go up. Um, I talked to Corey Jez, who used to work for the Utah Jazz and is a on-air broadcaster right now with the... Uh, blazers who does analytics and we were talking about how there's there's still some sort of low-hanging fruit to be picked in terms of improving offensive strategy there's uh you know people talk about the death of the mid-range about a third of all shots are still taken between four feet out from the rim and the three-point line um in that sort of lower percentage area and and that's never going to be zero because you have to you have to have players in those places to threaten the defense and and move the defense but it, it could be a lot less than a third um and and then offensive rebounds was another one we talked about where teams are starting to have more success sending guys into crash and the the added value of the extra offensive possession seems to mathematically be a lot greater than the what you give up by having fewer guys back in transition so we may see teams start to send more guys to crash go for offensive rebounds and that would just lead to a faster pace game of more putbacks but also more dunks going the other way um so, so i would say those two strategic changes could lead offenses to get even better i hadn't even thought about that because that's something that i just felt like was more intuitive that you know it's better to get another offensive possession than potentially have people back on defense while the other team brings the ball up more slowly um i, I that just seems intuitive to me but I, I i just think that's interesting as an actual strategy of being like crash like crash the boards and like put all of your energy into trying to get offensive rebounds even if you're yeah I mean, I'm going to make a Sacramento point, even if you're Harrison Barnes and you're not exactly like the biggest rebounding threat, like getting that extra possession just matters so much more than the the defensive, the off ball defense on the other side of the floor. Because even if you play lax off ball defense because you're in transition, like odds are pretty good that the three point shot's not going to go in. So you'd be better served trying to get another offensive possession. And if it's an offensive rebound, a I'm going to guess an increased chance of a layup or a dunk as a result of an offensive rebound. Yeah. Yeah. Scoring rates are, are much higher off an offensive rebound than in the half court. Um, and if, and this is like such a simplified version of the math, but just sort of, if you're having trouble grasping, like why the offensive rebounds more value, if you just think about it right now, this shot goes up, um, comes off the rim. The team, the offensive team has gotten no points from that possession. If someone comes in for a put back dunk, you're essentially adding two points over what you were expected to get if you hadn't gotten that offensive rebound. In the reverse, let's say you go for the offensive rebound, you miss it. The other team's coming back for a possession that's you know going to, on average, get 1.1 points. Let's say they go for a dunk, that's two points. They've increased their 
expected points by 0.9, let's say, because the possession was going to be worth 1.1, but then said scored in transition. So if you get that put back dunk, you're essentially averaging, add, adding two points to your team sort of like over expected. Um, but going back to transition, it's, it's, it's more, it's a better trade off for you. Uh, you're not giving up quite as much. So that's and like a, even a if super, it's not super a, simplified version of like a one possession math. Yeah, but even if it's not like they're guaranteed to get a dunk, like even if you get an offensive rebound and you get uh, a, a more high percentage shot, like say within five feet of the basket and say your sure. expected points are 1.6 or 1.5 something or whatever the expected percentage is for shots within five feet, like even if it's one point five or 1.6 expected points per possession that's still better than the 1.1 on the other end of the floor and so if you just keep doing that on every possession you will ultimately see your offensive rating go up again like the the smallest amounts but as we're seeing it your as your data points out like the smallest amounts can be the difference from being the pistons who are 24th in the league to being uh like i forgot who um was like seventh on the list, but uh, being like uh, the Pacers who are like ninth on the list right now. I don't think of the Pacers and Pistons having super dissimilar offenses other than like Kate Cunningham is out for the Pistons now, but like when they had Kate Cunningham, he was doing things similar to what Tyrese Halliburton is doing. And they have similar scoring threats off the wing, like buddy healed to Bogdanovich, like the smallest margins yeah. can actually make a difference. That is a really good point. And, and you see on the graph that teams are more bunched together than they used to be. And we've talked about the reasons why uh, that that is uh, just sort of like schemes becoming more uh, uniform across the league. Um, these these sort of strategies about shooting more threes, um, value analytics, and then obviously tanking becoming less prevalent. Uh, but yeah, it, it is pretty crazy to think about like Indiana averages 1.15 points per possession. Detroit averages about 1.12. And those teams are in like totally different stratospheres in terms of their, what they're, if they're, they're the amount they're trying to win, their success this season. And we're talking about 0.03 points per possession, uh, which is like not something you could even perceive sort of with the naked eye if you watched a game. Like you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to watch each team play 100 possessions and like give me an accurate answer of who who made more shots if you weren't looking at the score. So that that that's pretty amazing how bunched together these teams are. Yeah. So if you want more, if you want to read through the the stats that we brought up again, there's a link in the description of this episode. You can also follow Data Cobbis, I believe is how you say that on Instagram. Um, there's yeah, nice there's links in the description of this episode for all of that stuff. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Lev. And uh, this was a lot of fun. I like talking about nerdy basketball stuff sometimes. So uh, it was good to good to have the data points and glad that we could uh, we could make this happen. Yeah, this was this was a ton of fun. We covered covered a lot.